designing, manufacturing, installing, and maintaining the high-speed electronic computer, the largest and most complex computers ever built. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Building Better Systems. Um, this is a podcast where we get together with people at the forefront of firefighting and working on making systems better and building the tools and approaches that kind of help them get there. Um, my name is Spat Morina. And I'm Joey Dodds. Today, we're joined by Tycho Anderson. And Tycho's an engineer at Cisco working on Linux kernel security and uh, kernel stability. Tycho spends his days working to solve really complicated problems that are going on in the kernel that are causing both Cisco and other companies to feel pain and causing their container infrastructure to, to suffer. And Tycho basically works tirelessly to make as many of those problems as possible go away while also improving the Linux ecosystem for everyone. Uh, he holds degrees from University of Wisconsin-Madison and Iowa State University. And it sounds like he's been an open source contributor for quite a long time. So this is a really, I think, ideal job for, for Tycho. Uh, thanks for joining us, Tycho. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now that we've informed ourselves thoroughly about, about Tycho, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick us off with our, our usual question. Um, Tycho, what's your approach to building better systems? Well, uh, Unfortunately, I don't know that I have a very good one. I think um, I feel like some days my job is just professionally catching knives. Um, and I have never had any formal training in knife catching. So, you know, I, my most of my advice probably today will is, is informed by uh, just a long time of, you know, building stuff and um, and seeing what goes wrong. Uh, sort of at the core, I would say, write more tests is good. And, uh, you know, that's, that's basically the number one thing, I guess. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we, we've, we, we brought you on today, Tycho, cause, um, this is a really interesting counterpoint to some of the perspectives that we've shared so far, which have all have been, been about sort of the most principled possible approaches to making systems better. Um, but in reality, most people maybe don't have the time or energy to always take the most principled approaches possible. And you have to settle for something that gets things working today, that gets things working tomorrow, that stops your machines from crashing. Could you tell us a bit about what this knife catching entails, what you do day to day? Sure. Yeah. Um, so my day to day, I work on this Linux platforms team at Cisco and I've worked kind of in the container realm, um, both sort of on the kernel and the low level user space that calls into containers and container checkpoint restore and container stuff um, since about 2013. And uh, so what I do day to day for Cisco is I, I'm a stable kernel maintainer for their platforms. And then also I do some feature development in the kernel um, for containers and then also just some thinking about security, although that's very hard. So, um, yeah, that's what I do. So what are the, what are the implications of, of kernel stability on basically like our, our day-to-day -day lives? Like if the kernel's crashing, for example, how bad is it? I guess, I guess the question is, it depends on which kernel is crashing. So, um, we, uh, you know, so I work at Cisco and we deploy a lot of Linux all over. So mostly we're at the 
you know, network architecture level and all of our systems are, you know, uh, the name is escaping me right now, highly available. There we go. Um, so they all have failover and stuff. So for the most part, if one kernel goes, goes wrong, it's, it's, it's okay. It's when there's like a, an issue that affects a lot of them. You know, a lot of people have Linux running in their pockets on Android. If that kernel starts crashing, you're totally screwed. So, um, I, I think people people care a lot about kernel stability uh, and have started to care a lot about kernel stability, I would say, especially in the last 10 years, um, as Linux has gotten more and more prevalent. And there's been a lot of work, you know, when Linux was first a thing, you know, in the 90s, um, this was kind of before my time, really. I, I really became a full-time Linux user in 2007. Um, but I think there just there wasn't a lot of testing and people kind of put patches in and you know, uh, if it broke, you got an email and that's how you knew it broke. Um, so, you know, the rest of the world was your CI system, uh, which is fine if you're kind of a hobbyist project in the 90s. But now it's a, you know, very professional project powering, you know, gazillions of dollars of uh, revenue. And so uh, I think I think the kernel community as a whole has really woken up in the last 10 years and tried to do a better job of, um, you know, testing and things. It's super interesting. The you know we hear this over and over again. It's something you know you're building something, and it's a it's a hobby. You're you're kind of being involved as a hobbyist, and then later on that code goes on to you know, be almost critical to well, very critical to a lot of things. Um, and then somebody has to go back in and work with this with these systems that have been built with. Not necessarily thinking like, oh, this is going to be, as you said, gazillions of dollars or maybe even lives, you know, depending on this mm -hmm. running well. Um, I'm curious if you have any kind of thoughts for people who are writing code kind of as a hobby that might later on be, um, you know, become that kind of impactful. Well, you can't know that by definition, but um, let me step back and ask this question. What can people do when they're writing code that right now might not have you know have other people rely on it massively but um let me restart this question <laughs> <laughs> um if if you're working on code as a hobby and not as a profession um what are some low-hanging fruits from your perspective that wouldn't necessarily take make make it kind of a, a professional commitment of time that you might be doing that make those systems better yeah, it's uh, it's a great question, um, and I actually have I don't know some experience with this. Um, so my uh, one of my open source projects that I really have loved working on for a long time is this window manager called Qtile, uh, and it's just a it's just a window manager written in Python. And uh, it turns out it will never be valuable to anyone. Nobody will ever pay anyone to work on a window manager because we already have too many, and there will. <laughs> Just nobody cares about window managers except for the weirdos on the internet who care, uh, of which I am one. Um, and if you look through the commit history of that window manager, you can see, because I've been working on that project for almost 11 years now, and you can see early on my commit messages were short. They're kind of, I don't know, not very good. And then basically right about the time that I started becoming a Linux kernel contributor, everything really snaps into like very professional um, commit messages and with links to various documentation, you know, oh, here's this weird place in the X11 spec where this thing happens or one of my favorite goofy X, every, you always hear about how the X11 API is terrible. One of my favorite goofy things is there's a 
in XCB, there's a thing where it uses the space in memory before the pointer you pass in. So you have to allocate some memory before the pointer you pass in. And I just think that's crazy. But I, you know, the commit message for that particular thing when I fix that bug has a big long write-up of why this is and all this stuff. And so I think, you know, it, it seems sort of unnecessary at the very beginning, but when that code becomes important, you or someone like you will have to do, but probably you, um, you know, if you care about the project and you enjoy it, will have to figure out why did I do this? And if you go back to the commit logs and you see, you know, initial commit or fix X, Y, Z or whatever, and there's not a lot of reasoning about why a particular line of code exists, it can be hard to, um, you, you know, hard to figure out what's going on. So I guess the thing that I've done now since I started be working on the kernel was in all other projects that I do, I just, I write good commit messages, even for repositories of like my dot files and stuff. You do a lot of spelunking when you enable some one line change in your bash RC or your ZSHRC or whatever. And like that, that's valuable time that you, you will have wasted that if you don't record that information somewhere. And so the commit log is a great place to do that. So I think the most basic thing people can do on projects they're working on today that aren't necessarily a big deal is just practice good commit hygiene. Make sure everything would always bisect, even if maybe nobody will ever bisect it, but it's just a good a good habit. And, the, you know, the kernel, if you ever want to be a Linux kernel contributor, that they force you to do that. I mean, your patch just will not get accepted if it doesn't follow, you know, these very strict rules, which is totally reasonable. Um but I think that's a just a super basic thing that is very, very valuable. This has really been a recurring theme with people that we've talked to is that we can't just look at technology. Uh, we published episode two, which was with MuseDev. And one of the things they said is we can do all we want on the technology side. And if people don't adopt and if people don't actually think about how they're writing code and how they're putting code together, it, the technology can't help. Um, and it mm -hmm. sounds like the Linux community um, and I don't know when this started, but it sounds like the Linux community is doing a really nice job of holding people to that standard of of explaining themselves. But it also sounds like you've taken that you've taken that that professional learning that you did and found it even valuable to apply to your personal projects, which sounds like a great uh, a great example of of actually that being valuable, right? Sometimes we do things at work and we're like we have to tick the box for work. Fine, I tick that mm -hmm. box. They wanted me to do it. Um, but sometimes things you do professionally are really there for a reason. And it sounds like this is one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this is, it, it's a super valuable thing. And, uh, you know, I've become a lot more strict about it with other contributors, um, in, in my open source projects, just because I think it's important now after having watching the Linux people do it. Now that now you're that guy. Now I, I am absolutely that guy and I am totally unapologetic about it. Uh, it's it's this is a super important thing. So that's, that's brilliant. It's an excellent point. And it sounds like the bar the bar for doing that it sounds like is like, am I gonna maybe work on this next year? And if if the answer to that is yes, then go mm -hmm. ahead and just take that extra minute to write a good commit message. Yeah, I mean, I sort of think about it like, well, you try and eat healthy now, you try and exercise now, you try and save money for your future retirement or whatever. Like you do all of these other things to take care of your future self. Like here's one, to, here's one more way in which you can take care of your future self because odds are it's going to be you. So um, yeah, totally. I view it exactly the same but way. But it sounds like it, it sounds like Linux is maybe in the situation where it, uh, you know, it went off to college and in, in the early 90s and gained its freshman 15 and 
you know, maybe, maybe tried a few experimental things and, and things got a little wild and, and maybe part of your job is dealing with that at this point. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I think the, if you look at Linux commit messages, they have always been very good, even before things like Git existed. I think they were very oh, good wow. about that. Now, yeah, the thing that maybe wasn't so good and, and has gotten better, to your point, is the testing. Um, you know, now there's a Linux Foundation staffer, Shua Khan, and her job is to maintain case self-test and make sure it gets run and that kind of stuff. Whereas I think she was hired in 2017. So like pretty new thing to have a Linux foundation fellow who just focuses on testing. Like this is an, you know, we've, we've had um, other testing and infrastructure projects. XFS tests are, has been around for a long time because the file system people, you know, need to make sure their stuff isn't broken, but it, that's not part of the kernel repository. There's no integrated CI, or at least there wasn't at the time um, when they started that project that there's um, like the Intel, uh, the Intel build bot basically just tries to build everything that gets sent to LKML. And I think a lot of build failures started getting caught that way because it doesn't just build x86. It built, in spite of being run by Intel, it builds all the architectures. And so, you know, your thing may, may compile on stuff that most people use, but like Extensa or whatever, you know, might break that compile and, and you'll get an email about that these days. Or, um, you know, the I think... Maybe the most important project is the SysCaller project um, by some guys at Google. I think it's led by Dmitry Vukyov, and that's been a super valuable project, you know, over the course of the last five or eight years, however long it's been going. So uh, the kernel community is growing up, um, but there was some, I think, some work to lose the freshman 15 indeed. But I mean, it sounds like like even good commit messages in the 90s, I think, was probably like a, it's kind of a big deal, right? People weren't doing much CI in the nineties. So you can be, you can certainly be forgiven for not having a CI build in the nineties and that like maybe everybody that had to approve it would download the thing themselves and try to build it and sign off. And maybe sometimes they sort of skipped it because they looked good to them and they didn't have time. Um, yeah, but it sounds like they've been pretty close to as, as quick to adopt these good practices as anybody has basically. Yeah, I, I, I mean, certainly around commit messages, I, I, I've never seen a project that was anywhere as good as the Linux kernel. I, I mean, to the point where, like, if you watch some of these interviews that Linus does at various conferences, I mean, he talks about, he's like, I almost don't care about the code change. He's like, the, the commit messages, you know, the part people are going to inspect. And, you know, I mean, the, the other thing about the kernel is, like, there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of engineers who are going to look at all this stuff because, you know, there's a big team of guys. When I worked at Canonical, they had 25 kernel engineers who were backporting stuff to their across their kernels. Um, I think Red Hat has an even bigger team. You know, Suse has a team. I work for a team at Cisco where I regularly spend time spilling through the kernel logs, trying to find, you know, information about backtraces and all kinds of stuff. So, there, I mean, there's, you know, hundreds or thousands of engineers all over the world that are going to try and figure out like, oh, I have this bug. You know, generally when I'm looking at a kernel bug, it's in some subsystem that I don't really know that well. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of, you know, grasping at straws already. So an explanation of like a healthy explanation in the, in the commit log is, is very, very helpful. Hey, you touched on this a little bit, um, but, you know, when we were doing prep for, for, for this podcast, you were telling us a little bit about your job and it sounded it sounded really cool. I mean, you, you said knife caching, but the way I saw it was basically you were called in to do some, you know, firefighting, a firefighter meets Sherlock Holmes kind of 
stuff um, as it relates yeah. to kind of kernel stuff. I, I wonder if you could like tell us a little bit about what, what that entails day to day and what that looks like. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we have, um, I think probably like any large organization, we have some levels of support and, um, you know, when, when, when the customer hits a kernel bug, you know, it goes some to some frontline support engineer and, you know, goes up various levels until finally, um, most of the time, by the time it gets to me, it's been touched by a bunch of people. So the system it's, is not in its original state. Uh, often we have a backtrace. Um, in fact, I enabled the use of a subsystem called PStore in uh, the kernel where we actually, there's a, there's a small writable section in the ACPI tables. And now when uh, one of our devices core dumps, we write this core dump stack trace into, or sorry, the, the kernel panics, we write the kernel panic stack trace into the ACPI tables because often we won't, system D will rotate away the logs before I even get it. And so the only place that we get this stack trace is from this like little writable section in the ACPI table. So often what I start with is, uh, you know, an explanation of here's a kernel stack trace, you know, please fix this bug. And sometimes it will come accompanied with an explanation of, oh, we were doing this at the time, but usually it's like, a user who's like, oh, I clicked on this JavaScript icon in the app. And that's, you know, not really connected to what happened, you know, on the back end when the kernel crashed. So, you know, um, the first thing to do is, you know, Google bits of the stack trace. And there's like, you know, heuristics about how you can splice bits to, just to see if anybody else has seen it. Um, you know, is there, are there any other bug reports from this? You, a lot of times there's, you know, the uh, kernel bug tracker, but that's not so good. LKML have some reports. Um, so there's various places. Um, one of my favorite bugs, probably my all-time favorite bug that I fixed while working at Cisco, um, it was a bug in the TTY subsystem, which is like the the subsystem that you know does all kind of the low-level text input and output um, when you're interacting with it, like over a serial console or something. And about, I think it was maybe 15 or even 20 years ago at this point, uh, there was a guy named Alan Cox who worked for Red Hat, and uh, he was the the maintainer of the TTY subsystem. And he, uh, you know, got into a fight with Linus about something. Linus didn't like the way he had handled something, and 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 Alan Cox said, "Well, ah, you know, fix it yourself. I'm not dealing with this anymore." And the TTY system has not seen a lot of love. I think Greg Crow Hartman is the maintainer now, and he just is so swamped. He doesn't have enough time to really sit down and. Um, I mean, he'll fix bugs if people report them, but there's no active development going on. So anyway, um, I get this this bug about this. Uh, I get this kernel stack trace, and I'm you know looking at it, and it's you know it's clearly a race condition, and I'm trying to think like, well, how would this happen? And it turns out basically that there was a critical section that was just protected by two different locks. So one function used lock X, different function used lock Y. They both look reasonable until you actually look at, well, this is lock X and this is lock Y. And so it turns out the race condition is pretty easy if you're using two different locks. So anyway, the, the result of this was, it turns out that Alan Cox had been right in the middle of a refactoring when he got annoyed with Linus and quit. And probably this is like a thing that would have gotten fixed if he hadn't gotten annoyed and stayed working on it because he was in the middle of shifting to this new locking scheme. So anyway, the TTY subsystem has these two different locking schemes, basically because of this uh, sort of people issue. So anyway, all this is to say, um, 
you know, you can figure this out going back to, I figured this all out from the commit logs and looking at mailing list, you know, postings and timings, but this is like sort of the spelunking that you do. Like you guys were saying, Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes is really smart. I don't know that I'm a Sherlock Holmes, but you, you spend a lot of time more so than writing code, even just reading commit logs and, and doing this spelunking with stack traces and that kind of stuff um, more than anything. So I guess that's my answer. Is that a good, yeah. <laughs> is that, I don't it's, know. It's fantastic. It's super interesting to, to see not only to fix something, but also to kind of dive into like, how did it come to be from this essentially open uh, uh, historical kind of catalog of, of everything that happened, both as commits, commit messages, but also just, you know, socially what happened. Right. We, we talked about commit messages. Um, Linux community is able to keep things relatively bug free and now with more and more kind of it being a critical part of a, of, of a lot of things. <laughs> well, right. it's it's good enough that my phone doesn't usually turn off in the middle of the day, right? Which is really good considering how much work is going on. Exactly. There. And it's yeah. still kind of a community process, uh, an open community process, at least the way I understand it naively. Um, I'm wondering if, what does that process look like today? And, you know, if people, if there's other people working on things that are rel relatively critical, what can they steal from that from that whole thing, especially if they want to integrate a community in, in the process? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the vision of uh, the Linux kernel as a community process is totally correct. Um, now, it's not a community of hobbyists sitting in their basements. I get paid full time to work on Linux, um, you know, I, uh, of various forms, whether it's user space or the kernel. Um, but, you know, I get paid. And for example, this patch series that I'm working on now uh, we have people from Google, uh, we have people from Red Hat, uh, we have people from Canonical all making the argument that, hey, this should go into the Linux kernel. Um, and, you know, usually, especially, so the thing that I'm working on now is um, the, it's basically, uh, it's a container feature where you can UID shift um, file systems is, is what it is. Um, so it's a, it's honestly, it's a core piece of the container infrastructure that hasn't been implemented before. And it's kind of crazy that it hasn't, or it's, it's been implemented, but nothing's been merged. Um, but it's, it's a fairly big patch series. Um, and I'm only, you know, small two patches part of it. Um, but it's, it's such a big series that uh, you need collaboration from a lot of people because if one person sends this big, huge patch series and says, Hey, I want to do this crazy thing. Everyone else is going to go no, just, just figure out a different way um, where we have collaboration from all these different companies and we all have said, yes, we want this and here's the way we're going to use it. And all of our use cases are different. Um, and there's been versions of this, you know, that have surfaced before that wouldn't have satisfied Cisco's use cases. And so we've had to go to conferences or, you know, uh, since coronavirus do the online thing and, and sort of, uh, you know, sway people you know we get in we get in these conferences and we sit in the rooms and we say well here's our use case your solution doesn't work but if you modify it like this then you know we're willing to lend engineering time and the four of mine of my time to help you um and so that you know it, it really is sort of designed by committee for all of the good things and all of the faults as well um and it, you know there's a thing i mentioned before is you know the abi is stable and so it can never be broken. So once an API goes in, it will always be there. So it really pays to think about the API before you put it in. 
maybe the fact that it's so permanent kind of makes that level of thinking about it and being deliberate almost a must. Yeah, which is maybe one of the reasons this has not existed for the last however long, even though it seems like an obvious feature, but it just incarnations before this current one that we started working on maybe in February um, just wouldn't have solved all the problems that we needed it to solve. So the community is pretty conservative about adding new APIs, which can be annoying because, you know, we've been feeling this pain for the last five years and, you know, Ubuntu has one set of out of tree patches in their kernel and other people solve this other ways. But, you know, now that we've all been kind of doing this in the painful way for a while, we have a little bit better insight about what we actually need in order to accomplish our goals. So, um, you know, the fact that we can design one API that does lots of things for lots of people probably means that it's a fairly reasonable primitive uh, instead of just a one very narrow use case that one person had. I think it's really amazing, you know, the 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 myth you dispelled earlier of it's all hobbyists hacking in their basements. Um, I think a lot of people maybe still hold that about open source, but it's almost more amazing when you think of the fact that not only are, you know, you, you mentioned some, in some sense, downsides for the company, right? Like I'm sure a company that, you know, Cisco would maybe rather not have to, to argue its case to other companies, but it's also a clear indication of the value that Linux is bringing to all of these companies that you stick with it. So for every bit of design by committee, obviously you feel that you're getting that much effort from every other company that's that's playing part in this game and that everybody's kind of winning together, which is a really inspiring story, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's much easier for me to spend a few uh, conference evenings or whatever arguing with people about how an API design should look than implementing, you know, the whole thing from scratch myself or with a small team or whatever. So, it, you know, there absolutely is is a lot of value created in just having this thing that for the most part you can grab off the shelf. And I mean, we have to build all our own kernels and we, we have a lot of infrastructure to build all our own packages and all this stuff. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not free, but it, uh, it is, I think basically as long as Linux is around, you know, you're going to have to pay guys like me to just babysit it. Um, but paying guys like me to babysit Linux is, is much cheaper than paying guys like to me to write your own operating system from scratch. So, um, yeah, well, in the work you do, you know, Cisco could arguably fund its own kernel development if it needed to. Um, and it can fund you to take care of things, but there's tons of companies that start up depending on Linux that, could never, you know, th that for years couldn't afford a single kernel developer, right? And they all get to benefit as well. It's yeah, absolutely, um, for it's sure, really wonderful. Yeah, it's a weird. My cynical self is like, what's the catch? But in a way, you know, it's all what whatever rising sea, something something, <laughs> whatever the yeah. idiom is, something about ships. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it it seems like everybody benefits from this in a way, and the and the downside is that you get to argue a lot and. And you know, get to work with people really close to to convince that it's one way or the other. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, there, I think there's a fair amount of people. Like when I first got a job working on Linux, my dad was like, "So, what do you like? What's the value prop? Like, why are they paying you?" You know, um, and I think it it you know it has taken maybe some companies longer to understand um, the value prop. Maybe Cisco is even one of those um, that you know that maybe they should start participating and giving back. Um, but people are getting like, people are figuring that out. 
and they're getting that message. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really nice. And it's fun because uh, I'm doing the same thing I would be doing anyway. I've been a Linux desktop user for a long time and it's painful. So at least now I can get paid to fix all that stuff. <laughs> I think I think a lot I, like I wish a lot more communities, including I guess the the formal methods community, which is the one we play the heaviest part in, could learn from this a bit. And I think at Galois we've started seeing this even internally. We've historically had a lot of siloed projects, and all of a sudden things are starting to to meet in the middle. And it there's a lot of friction there, right? As you mentioned, sometimes you're doing design by committee when you just want to implement the thing, um, mm-hmm. but and and you go through that pain. But then like the next day, you see like oh, you know, I wanted this new feature. I can't afford it on my project, but great news. Somebody else was doing it anyways. And I just got that, right? Like I didn't even have to, I didn't have to lift a finger. Um, mm-hmm. And I would love to see that in that community across companies as well. Like I, I think it would be, like it's a real win for a lot of communities and Linux feels like the standout example. So I want to change uh, kind of gears a little bit. You mentioned APIs earlier. Um, and I suspect that if I'm an engineer developing conventional applications that run on software systems, that w- word means something very different than it, what it means to you developing essentially on, or like hacking on the Linux kernel. I'm curious what those differences are. Um, and then I'm curious if there is something for those two groups to learn from each other. Yeah. Uh, fair question. Um, I, th- I think it's in some sense, it's the same thing. It just looks different. So the, the API for like a Linux system call, for example, is you put some, you know, depending on your architecture, you either put some information in registers and then some more information on the stack or it's all on the stack or whatever. Um, and uh, then you issue an int 80 or whatever, or the syscall instruction or wh- whatever your thing is to trap into the kernel. And the kernel reads off the information out of the registers, out of the out of your stack or your heap or wherever, and then proceeds to operate on it. So, you know, that looks a lot different from, a, you know, I'm going to HTTP post this JSON blob to this endpoint, and then something happens, and then I get this result back. Um, but, you know, a lot of the problems are kind of the same. Um, so for a while, uh, people were adding system calls to do things. Um, and so, you know, that the, the mechanism I just described uh, was the way that you added new functionality to Linux kernel. Um, then for a while, I think for whatever reason, it became very out of vogue or impolite to add new syscalls. And so people put a lot of information and, and various things in slash proc. So for example, if you're turning on a Linux security module in LSM like SE Linux or uh, AppArmor or something like that, you actually do that by writing to a proc file. There's no system call for that. Or if you're configuring a user namespace, if you're trying to set up the ID mappings, you do that by writing to some file in slash proc. Um, so those are API calls, but they're really you know writes to a file and they're not system calls. And then more recently, we've kind of gone back to in Linux the system call model um, for, you know, a variety of reasons that are, I don't know, more just specific to Linux than anything else. But the most recent in, uh, syscall, rash of syscalls that people have been implementing are, uh, there's a document, I think maybe two years ago that was put into the kernel documentation tree about what they call extensible argument syscalls. And it's a way to, you know, design um, system calls so that 
you add elements to the end of the structure and it talks about how things should behave and under various conditions, if your kernel is newer, if your user space is newer, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the core of that really is versioning, you know, the kernel, as the kernel adds new functionality, it basically wants to version the API and, uh, this extensible argument mechanism is a sort of a fancy way for us to do API versioning with, you know, just very basic memory passing and stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the key takeaway, I guess, is if you have an API, you should have a way to version it. And I think people who are, you know, doing JSON APIs and HTTP can also take that away too. If you have a config file, just stick a version one at the top, just some way for you to, to add or grow or change the semantics of that without totally breaking all of your users. Um, I guess that's kind of the number one takeaway uh, from Linux kernel API. And it's best to do that from the start, like even when you're yes. doing your first, uh, you know, point, 0.01 version, if you put the version there um, and require it, you're going to be happy later on, it sounds like. Yes. And users of Qtile who are listening to this will be very angry with me because we often break the API in Qtile. Sorry. <laughs> Do what do do as I say, not as I do, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Thank you for that. Another thing that's on my mind is when we talked about. So I want to go back to kernel CI and um, kind of finding things that are wrong and finding bugs in in kind of new code. I think my understanding is that there's some tools and approaches there that have that have kind of produced a lot of really good results. I'm curious what those are. Yeah, um, the so for CI, I mean, the story is really sort of case self text tests, XFS tests to a certain extent. Tools like FIO for performance measuring and block devices and stuff, um, and file systems. Um, those are those are good tools for catching uh, regressions, um, and you know for testing new implementations of a file system or whatever um, for performance aspects, but. There's also, you know, any any talk about kernel testing would be remiss if it did not mention, I think, uh, the work that's been going on in Google and SysCaller, that's S-Y-Z-K-A-L-L-E-R, um, which is, it's it's kind of a, a pretty basic fuzzer um, for the kernel. It's, it's grown a lot now and it's a lot more advanced. There's a whole um, DSL, domain-specific language for uh, designing like interleaving system calls and stuff so you can get the kernel in the particular states. Um, but syscaller has found lots of bugs. It's found lots of bugs in code I've written. It's found lots of bugs in other pe code other people have written. It's found lots of very security critical information leaks and stuff, you know, just behavioral bugs, kind of everything. Um, and the guy who leads the project is Dmitry Vukyov at Google, and I, he's done an amazing amount of work that's very good, and they found a lot of stuff. And in particular, they have a bug tracker that's open, so if you want to fix sort of some some are basic bugs in the Linux kernel, you know that's a great place to start. But it's a it's a quite a quite an amazing tool, and it is really I think has made kernel developers pay more attention to that kind of thing, to the you know just validating inputs, making sure that, you know, we're not in these sort of very basic uh, copy from user, copy to user kind of uh, length errors, that kind of thing, because they know they'll get a million reports from syscaller if they screw that up. And, you know, people kind of joke about how annoying it is that it's sending all these emails, but all these emails are real bugs. And it, it, on most emails, it doesn't always have a reproducer for how it got there, but on most emails, 
there's a C program attached that if you run this C program, it will, you know, it will cause a kernel splat. So it's very hard to ignore. Yeah. I'm curious what you, what your thoughts are on what makes it such a successful tool. It sounds like, is it just because it's there at the end of the day? I think so. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure part of it is just that Google has put a lot of resources in terms of just compute power behind running lots of instances to find all these bugs. But, you know, they also hired the team to build the tool. And uh, I think there there are other companies now contributing to it, too. But I think it's primarily driven by Google. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think just being there and and they're all they're doing lots of interesting things, too. Like they're not just fuzzing at the syscall level anymore. They're doing like USB device drivers. So what happens if I write a bunch of random drunk to this junk to this USB device? Can I make it crash in a certain way? Um, you know, just and, and these these are like real bugs that people could exploit. You know, if I can get uh, um, like root access on your machine just by plugging in a bad USB stick, you know, that's that might be a problem. So um, it's it, they've been doing a lot of, I think, very good work. It also sounds like the the fact that it provides an actual runnable program that then you can play with um, as you try to mm-hmm. fix something potentially might be, or at least to me naively sounds like it, it might be a factor of, of helping you to engage with it. For sure, um, at least from my perspective, when it finds bug in, bugs in my code, often it will send uh, this C reproducer and say, um, you know, run this. And that makes it very easy to, you know, just look at, look at the race or whatever. Um, so, you know, it, it will, it will sometimes take a little while cause it'll have two threads and they're trying to, you know, do something very fast, but you know, it will eventually reproduce. And that is, I would say very, very useful. And yeah. And it, you know, that makes you think about what user experience UX means for kind of static analysis tools or just basically tools like this that are for developers because mm-hmm. that sounds to me like a really good kind of ux um, choice yeah if you think about any program that has an api if you send somebody like here like if you're even if you have a json api you know if you're fuzzing your json api it could generate a curl you know blob that hey when i paste this curl blob with this curl command to your thing you know bad things happen or whatever but it's basically here's an input that makes your program crash that program is you know this current your kernel or whatever but it it's this it's a similar thing yeah it's a great ux cool. do you think there's work to be done still in the automated testing world like is there a lot that you mentioned it's a pretty straightforward fuzzer um I'm going to like say like, is there a, if you're in the automated testing world, is there a call to action where like you could maybe crash the kernel in some high impact way and find a really impactful bug if you, if you apply your tools in this space? Yeah. So I think there's probably a couple of different ways um, in which there could be more automated testing uh, or better automated testing. Maybe the first is on the, you know, I mean, it's a fuzzer and it, you know, they have a domain specific language so they can explore the call graph a little bit deeper. Um, But it's, I think it's still, it's a pretty shallow exploration of things. Like for example, in order to set up a container, you have to do a series of syscalls, write all the right information to these proc files and do a series of more syscalls and, like syscaller is just not going to be able to explore that very well. So um, that's a, like one of those things where in order to like, there's a, how many container runtimes and all of them implement some version of this series of steps and surely some of them must get it wrong. And we don't have any real way to check that. But also just uh, on the kernel side, 
right now it has, there's like KM SAN, which is the kernel memory sanitizer, KT SAN, kernel thread sanitizer. Um, so there's a lot of these like error checking things, like is the kernel in a bad state on the kernel side? And implementing more of those types of ideas, uh, syscaller turns all of those things on. And if any of one of them triggers a bug, then they send you their reproducer and blah, blah, blah. So um, if if you can upstream something like that into the Linux kernel, you don't actually have to write any more test cases because syscaller is all, all running them already. You just email Dmitry Vukyov, or probably you don't have to email him. He's picking up on this stuff. But as soon as it lands upstream, he'll just turn it you know, equals Y and his kernel config. And then whatever bugs you're think catch will then all of a sudden be caught by all of the syscaller instances that everyone's running. So I think there are a few different, you know, avenues. If, if you can all of a sudden, oh, well, we need to do this runtime instrumentation, but we can catch this class of bugs that nobody knows about right now. That's a useful thing too. And there's already a whole bunch of, you know, dynamic testing going on. So if you just implement that thing, that is very useful. So, so if you are a automated testing researcher, I encourage you not to do that because I want to do it. Um, so, so please don't take those projects and run with them because I'm honestly pretty excited about the idea of doing that. And it sounds like a great place to apply these techniques. Um, well, we can take a page from, from the Linux community and maybe do it together. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the second, I mean, the, yeah, the idea of broadening the the impact of the current tools is also is, you know, whenever possible is definitely the right way to do things rather than building new tools. It makes adoption easier. Of course, people are already very comfortable, it sounds like, receiving those emails. Um, and so, you know, it sounds like anybody going after these problems would certainly be best served by understanding the syscaller work and whether it could be extended in the direction that they're taking it rather than trying to build their own thing that will result in one more form of uh, slightly annoying, but but respected email from, from kernel developers, basically. Yeah, totally. Well, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for joining us and for chatting with us about, about all this. I had no idea what, what really goes on these days in, in kind of kernel space. So this is awesome. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely, yeah. Well, this has been another episode of Building Better Systems. Uh, with Tycho Anderson. I will see you, everybody next time.